What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Everyone and welcome to Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast you need. This is Lindsay Gibbs, sports reporter at Think Progress, and we have a skeleton crew today. It is just myself and my lovely and in my same city co-host, <laughs> Amira Rose Davis. How are you doing, Professor Hello. Dr. Davis? I'm good. And Gemini gang, 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 we're taking gang- over. Oh, God, the Gemini's have taken over. Maybe that's why it's uh, 10 p.m. at night and you were just locked out of your house and I'm it's sick. A mess. Maybe that's it's a mess. <laughs> this is what happens when it's the Gemini takeover. Uh, <laughs> it's a hot ass mess. <laughs> Anyways, we are the two who are not seeing the World Cup live. Brenda and Jess are still in France. Shireen is recovering from her trip to France, which uh, I understand you would need a few days to recover from because she was everywhere and schooling everyone as she does. So yeah, look, this is going to be a pretty straightforward episode here. We decide let's not overthink it. Let's talk NBA and NHL finals. Let's talk about what's going on in the Women's World Cup. And then we have a really special interview for you all. Amira is going to talk to Eileen Murray about the brand new Premier Ultimate League and discuss ways in which they are striving for equity and inclusion in the sport of Ultimate Frisbee. So something a little different for us. I haven't listened to it yet and cannot wait to hear that interview. And yeah, look, Amira... Should we just dive right in? <laughs> I think I think we better just dive right in <laughs> before anything else goes, goes wrong. wrong. <laughs> Okay, so let's start. It feels weird, I have to say, to have this conversation without Shireen here. Indeed. But let's start with the NBA. So we have an NBA champion. It is the Toronto Raptors. They beat the Golden State Warriors after in the in injuries and fatigue and everything beat the Golden State Warriors. We we don't do asterisks here at uh, Burn It All Down. Of course, I was thrilled for Toronto. I was thrilled for Shireen. I was tolerant of Drake and his excitement. <laughs> and <laughs> if you, uh, and, uh, and, but, and Kawhi Leonard, who I just, just love, and my, my beloved Danny Green, who, you know, Tar Heel all the way. But, it was a weird. It was weird, right? Because you had in the final, you had Clay Thompson injure his ACL. When I woke up and saw that news, I just wanted to just. I, I was actually sick to my stomach. Of course, a cup of the game before that, Kevin Durant had tore his Achilles. So it's just like these are really terrible injuries to the best guys in the league. <laughs> oh, yeah. Did, what are you, what are your thoughts, Amira? Yeah, um, and you know it's always hard to watch people get hurt. My thoughts mainly are like, I don't like the NBA and the like ways that people just like run with narratives and storylines are wild to me. And so it's just like, 
you know, a lot of people now are playing back all of these kind of media takes about Kwai, like when he was leaving the Spurs. That looked terrible now. Yeah. But then in real time, you watch like everybody's like, oh, the Warriors dynasty is over. And it's like, no, they're still viable. (laughs) Like, I don't think, (laughs) I'm not one who thinks they're like, this puts them into a tailspin. Like, it certainly could. But, you know, they've been to four straight championships. Like, that's that's still dy- dynastic. Is that the word? So I just feel like we They've don't been to five straight finals. Five straight finals. Five. There you go. Yeah. Five. I even shorted them on one. But I think that there's, you know, a way where we don't know everything we think we know in the moment. So I know I just, everything, Amira. Stop oh, telling me oh, that sorry, I don't know everything. <laughs> I should I should correct that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that to me was like everything unfolding at the end. It was just like injuries and this and that and, um, you know, what moves are being made. And like, I will tell you, it exhausts me. It gave me fatigue. I was mostly just happy for everybody besides Drake in Toronto because – it was just lovely to see. Like, I think it's lovely when you haven't had that before. And I thought back to when they came out of the East. This is so awesome of you. It was so cute to see them experiencing this for the first time. It was cute. But I thought back to like a few weeks ago and everybody was like, is this really going to happen? Like, they're really going to the finals? And it's just like, it's really dope to see. But like, we do have to LOL for a second at Drake in his interview coming down the tunnel. Like, he literally just came off the court. Like actually playing, and he wasn't <laughs> even in the same city as the players were. Right. But he it's like wild. he really acted like he had just won it all. And there was this. Did you see the, Steph Curry's like phone call with him, where Steph Curry's walking out of the arena and he's calling to like congratulate Drake on the win? <laughs> no, I missed that. And it's being recorded like for the cameras, and I'm just like, you know what? There are really no winners here. There's oh just gosh. like no winners. How like, why does that why is that even a a thing? I don't know, because these guys just are like ridiculous. I don't even know. But so I, I know what you're saying about narratives. And look, I've listened to more NBA podcasts and I do watch NBA basketball because I don't have that much time, but I love the drama of it. And I also just love the sport of basketball. And you know, you get to know the personality so well. So I, I do really get sucked into all the narratives, all the drama. I like listening to all the takes. I love the offseason stuff. We are going to have to talk free agency in just a second because there was a little bit of news there today. And I do want to hear how Boston's feeling. Not good. But, <laughs> but, you know, it's to me, this entire series, first of all, it's a reminder that like there's a reason you're really not supposed to get to five straight finals like the wear and tear mentally and physically that's like what why what lebron did for so long is so inconceivable like even now because it's an extra like three months of basketball (laughs) like and much more intense basketball than the regular season quite tried to sit down yes the presser Okay, so there's this great clip where Kawhi Leonard is sitting down at the podium and he just like groans as he's sitting down and he goes, oh, shit, because he hurts. And someone on Twitter posted it and they said, all the 30 plus people know how he's feeling. And I had a very tough moment when my 20 something coworker sent that tweet to me and goes, what am I missing? (laughs) (laughs) 
I was like, oh, I have really bad news for you about your future. (laughs) Like, just the worst news. (laughs) Well, I did want to say the wear and tear is something that I think is a good point bringing up. Um, But, like, also just to say, like, we also got good basketball um, to just, like, take it to the court for a second. Like, it's nice to just also have good games. And I think that game six was a really good game. It had clutch shots and it like it felt like everybody was playing their best. Like even with injuries aside, it just felt like everybody was trying to leave it on the court. And like, you know, we've had other finals where they've been a snooze fest or everything going on off the field or off the court is the bigger storyline than the play itself. And I think that one of the things I do appreciate about these games is that it was compelling and that especially on the Raptors, you had like really unlikely heroes. Fred Van Vliet. I mean, who doesn't love Fred Van Vliet? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Did you call that one? Call Fred Van Vliet being a hero? No, I did not call that one. (laughs) Yeah, that was ridiculous. Yeah, no. And you know what? Okay, so we all complain. And I do too about, you know, when a team dominates for so long, at times it can get boring, right? Like at times it does feel like everything, nothing else matters. And there are moments where we all take greatness for granted. Or maybe there's some people who don't. I'm sorry if I'm looping you into the royal we. But the cool thing about dynasties and the great thing about these you know, super teams or these, you know, ridiculous runs is it gives everyone a target, right? It makes it more meaningful when they get knocked off. It gets gives everyone something to kind of swing for and pushes everyone to get better. And I think, you know, Toronto deserved this win. You know, I don't think they would have won if it had been a completely healthy clay and a completely healthy KD. But I think, you know, injuries always take always are a part of this. And I think Going back to the Kawhi stuff, one of the things that this should have, this should end the conversation. It won't, but it should. If anybody ever questioning players when they want to sit because of an injury, you know, or when they're having trouble with training staff or they don't seem to trust the process or they're taking longer. Because, I mean, honestly, I think you can tie both Kevin Durant's injury you know, the Achilles to the calf, those are connected. And when it comes to Clay, his hamstring and his, you know, the ACL, like those are not necessarily disconnected. You know, there's no way to tell 100% if one would happen without the other. You know, that's not how things, you know, work. But both of them came back. And I do believe that they both wanted to come back, you know, because of course you want to come back and play in the NBA finals. But it really did put what Kawhi did last year into perspective. You know, he felt uncomfortable about the place his body was and about the people who were taking care of his body. And that for him was a deal breaker. And you know what? Good for him. Yeah. And piggybacking off of that, I mean, I think to me that's just connected to the the control over their bodies that they have. And I mean that in terms of both advocating for themselves around injury and around what their body can and cannot do, but also about where their body should and should not play. And that's a way to segue into the free agency conversation immediately, like within hours of the game being over, a lot of the media attention turned to if Leonard would or would not stay in Toronto. Because if you recall, when he was signed, the the Raptors bet big. They bet that they would just go all in this year. They signed him with no guarantees, not to a multi-year contract, 
and they they achieved exactly what they hoped to. But now it's the next day yeah. <laughs> and and they're facing down the fact that he's probably leaving. And I think that there's, you know, that when I was talking about narratives before, that's one of the things that I was speaking about when I saw like a lot of people saying, oh, he's just a different kind of dude or he's, you know, he's weird. Like he's a great player, but, you know, to not have one, not care one iota about, you know, the space that he's playing in or, or Canada or not having any allegiance to stay. And it's just like, to me, the same shades of conversations we've heard time and time again, that really kind of balks at when players take control or attempt to exert some agency over where they labor. Yeah. And it's, look, I, I do get, I mean, we've had Shireen on this podcast talking about how she wants Kawhi to stay and how it's going to be really hard if he does leave and it will change a little bit the way she feels, you know, like as a fan. And I, and I get that. Like, I think like that's, you know, that that's the reality of it. Like we want these players to love, you know, our teams and but we also, you know, we also want them want them to be happy. And I think what Kawhi did coming in this year, he in his post game presser after winning the championship, he shared. He said, "You know, the day I was traded, I texted Kyle Lowry and I said, look, I know your best friend because we all know how close Kyle Lowry and Demar Derozan were.' And Demar Derozan was traded to the Spurs for Kyle Lowry, and you know he texted." And he said, I know how upset you are, you know, you are. I know you just lost your best friend, but let's do this. Like, let's, you know, I'm here and I want to win and let's do this together. And I thought that was so cool. Like, and that's what he did all year. You know, he came and uh, no, he didn't, you know, squelch any rumors about his free agency, but he came and did work and he cared and he did his job and he did it well. And from all things looked, it looks like, you know, the organization took great care of him. And no matter what happens next, what a special year this was and what a special player he is. And, you know, I think in the end, no matter what happens, it's going to be something that all Toronto and all basketball fans really look back on this year really fondly. Yeah, totally. And if I could just, you know, the two other things that I want to leave the NBA conversation with. I hope just one involve Anthony Davis not being a Boston Celtic because I would like to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, Lindsay, I was not going to talk about that. Thank you. <laughs> okay, well, we will have to talk about that, but keep going, keep going. Well, we can talk about that later. Mm-hmm. The two things are, one, the first thing is to say there is a situation that happened at the end of the game oh, yes. involving the executive and the president of, of basketball operations and GM of the Raptors, um, Masai Ujiri, who was getting onto the court because, duh, his team just won. And then there was, if you leave it to what the security guards leave it to what they say he like shoved this person out of his way when they were trying to check his credentials they said he didn't have his credentials handy and therefore when he kind of was like moving past them to go celebrate with his team rightfully so that he didn't have the right credentials to be on the field or on the court sorry and it's ridiculous because he's on live tv you can see at the moment he has his credentials A in his hand. Yeah, right there. And B in a picture a second later with his credentials aware in his hand. And it smacks of the same, you know, kind of similar situation, if you recall, that happened with Michael Bennett at the end of the Patriots Super Bowl two, three Super Bowls ago, where 
Houston PD basically did this whole press conference and accused him of pushing this elderly security guard and said that they couldn't locate him after the th- and it was all this stuff. And it's like, you can't locate him. He's on national TV giving an interview with his brother. Like, it's, you know, A, we can see this, but B, it, it's just kind of a, a reminder of profiling and who should or should not be there. And the fact that this GM of the Raptors went to celebrate his own team and was essentially stopped and asked for his papers. So that's something that is like a mini burn, but I wanted to put on the radar. We haven't heard the last of it, unfortunately, because it's still unfolding. And the second thing is the narrative of everybody saying, oh, no more basketball. The season's over. Just a quick reminder. WNBA's in season. Go watch that. Okay, thanks, it, And what a wild season it is. I have no clue what's happening. <laughs> it's so weird. Okay, really quickly, though, we also today found out that Anthony Davis is going to be in Los Angeles with LeBron, and now pretty much every Laker that's not LeBron is in New Orleans. And I know this was, I just, I I know Boston fans were in their feels today. Were you in your feels, Amira? No, I'm not. Because as my friend Howard Bryant has pointed out, I love when he makes this point, is like, what is the highest profile Black player in free agency that's chosen to come to Boston? And the answer is Al Horford. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. So, no, I'm not surprised. Like, I don't think it's really surprising. Like, I tend to think that um, people who come to Celtics will get drafted or traded there. Or it's going to be a big thing, like the big three, right? Like they pull off something like that. It needs to be a cluster hire, to borrow an academic term, um, about increasing diversity or targeting an area. And so I wasn't in my feelings because I didn't think it would happen. I don't know why people thought it would. I'm also like not <laughs> I'm ignoring the Celtics until they get their shit together. So that's also helping. <laughs> yeah, I think that's fair. They're in timeout right now. Uh, another Boston team. I'm sorry, Amira, but uh, listen, I have to admit, I did not watch much of the Stanley Cup Finals, but y- the Boston Bruins did fall in Game 7 to the Blues, who won the first ever Stanley Cup in St. Louis Blues history, which is quite, I did, it, it like, I keep forgetting because they've been around for so long that, that this is their first one. Uh, what, what what went wrong? What happened to the Bruins that last uh, game seven? Yeah, man, I was really upset. It was a frustrating game. And I was upset just because it had been a really good series. And then I just, the game was, uh, the St. Louis Blues goaltender was amazing. Stood on his head and hands down made the game even what it was. And it was a kind of peculiar game because the Bruins dominated the first period and most of the, you know, first half of the second period, they had more shots, right? At one point, there was a wild stat where the Bruins had like 15 shots on goal. None of them had gone in. The Blues had three shots on goal and two of them were goals. Right. So that kind of gives you a sense of like how the game was. Bruins were attacking a lot. They had a lot of good looks and there was amazing saves happening. And what happened was because they were pressing, it kind of went into this space where the Blues were able to get quick counterattacks and they didn't have a lot of shots, but man, their shots were precise. And then all of a sudden you're staring at a two a hole and at home and the kind of air just kind of went out and the energy went out of the garden and just kind of disappeared and then in the second period it was really wild because it was really fast paced really physical game it has been a really physical series and it was they were playing in a way that made you think like a 
they're either going to rip off a million goals right now and take this cup and win, or the Blues are going to get more and more energy because their goalie's standing on his head and not letting anything in, and they are going to pop another goal in. It either is going to explode with goals, or the Bruins are going to go down like four, and they did. <laughs> so that was frustrating to watch. I, I turned it off because I just don't need to feel terrible. So I just was like, at the second period, I could just see. I was just like, I know they're not coming back from this. Um, the Blues are playing too well. But yeah, so the thing that I think was most frustrating to me out of this whole series really goes back to the game in which there was a missed penalty that everybody kind of stopped playing and and then the Blues were able to punch it in. Like literally the players were all like standing, like had stopped skating because everybody was for sure that this was going to be called and it wasn't. And at the time, people were really mad about it, but Boston went in, went on to win the next two games. So it it kind of went by the wayside, and like I got frustrated all over again about that. But hey, at the end of the day, it was a really great series. Anytime you can go Game Seven in the Stanley Cup um, Finals, like you are lucky because playoff hockey is like one of the best things on earth. And I'm really proud of the Bruins. I'm proud of their season. It was a topsy-turvy playoff, so they weren't even supposed to get this far. But, man, this team was good. And congrats to the Blues. Like, it's really great, like I said before, to watch teams celebrate their first thing. So, like, go for it. Live your best life. You know, now you know how it feels. It's wonderful. And we'll be back next year. All right. It is time to move on to the Women's World Cup. I'm just going to dive right into it because there's been so much happening since we last recorded. Every single day, there's about 20 badass women of the week <laughs> performances, and it's almost overwhelming. So if you can, Amira, will you just start out? What is a game or a player that really sticks out for you, what we've seen in the last week of group play? So Sarah Gama and the backline of Italy has been playing lights out, out of their mind, fantastic. Um, There's been a couple of key saves and recoveries they come up with. They are a huge reason why Italy is um, kind of a surprise in this World Cup so far and has, you know, knocked off Australia, certainly, but also is just like really good. And I think their backline has give a lot of credit to them. So that's been phenomenal to watch. I think that's one of the things that jumps out the best to me. Endler, the oh Chilean goalie, put on an absolute show uh, today, actually, versus the United States. Even though the U.S. won in a quite lopsided way, it could have been so much worse. There was so many back-to-back um, brilliant saves that Endler made. Um, it was fantastic to watch. Yeah, it really I was. I completely agree. I thought that... Uh, Inler just to me like that's I honestly believe like this is the performance I'm gonna remember you know like years from now thinking back to this women's world cup I know like we've got a long way to go I know we're not likely to see Chile in the in the you know knockout rounds but it was just it was just goal after goal like she got into team USA's head and I just feel like there's just really nothing to me like seeing a dominant goalie performance it's just because i just don't understand i I don't understand how any of these athletes do any of these things but goalie (laughs) in particular like i would just be in the fetal position like i just can't even fathom like that that amount of pressure i know and it's like i was a striker like i'm much 
happier attacking and not just like sitting and waiting for like people to kick balls at my head. Like that is terrifying. So I have the utmost admiration for goalies and um, she just put on a clinic today. It was really wonderful to see. Um, Look, I hate that we have to discuss this, but I feel like this conversation could take us to some interesting places. So earlier this week, or last week now, Team USA beat Thailand 13 to nothing. Look, nobody really wants to see a score that lopsided <laughs> in, you know, the Women's World Cup. And I've been open here about how much I love Team USA, about how I am a homer when it comes to the, you know, the World Cup. It's one of the few things, as I'll be writing about in the next couple of weeks, that really does strike some patriotism in me. But, you know, seeing Thailand, those last two goals, it got it got really hard to watch. You know, it did. However, what came after this was a discussion where a lot of the media attention was on sportsmanship and on whether or not, you know, Team USA were bad sports, not just for continuing to score in, of course, a tournament where we know score differential actually matters. You know, it's not it's not nothing, but also their celebrations. They were, you know, big, uh, exuberant celebrations for each goal. And a lot of people had a problem with that. So, Amira, what are what were your thoughts on this controversy, I guess I would have to call it? <laughs> it was very interesting because I fell asleep yeah. in the second half of the game. <laughs> <laughs> and I fell asleep. I fell asleep when the score was like 3-0, right? At halftime. I missed the whole second half. I you missed a lot. Yeah, and it was like... Yeah, I woke up and it was like 13-0. And I was like, wait, what happened? And I instantly, before I even saw a highlight or a goal, anything, I saw debates raging. And so I actually had to go and I rewatched the game. And I saw it kind of unfold. And the way that people had been talking about online, I was thinking that their celebrations were going to be more than what they or were. Or like racist or something. prepared for Like them. that's how people were acting. Like, right. Or like screaming yeah, in yeah. their face or, you know. So one of the things that really jumped out to me is how many people who never have cared or watched women's soccer before started weighing in, particularly because it was, you know, trending, right? Then it became a point of conversation. And I think that, you know, Shireen, and I really wish Shireen was here because she had a very different um, kind of response to it. And she has a great Twitter thread that I, you know, recommend everybody check out for this, you know, another perspective in which a lot of what happened for her was that the chance of USA paired with the utter domination just underscored the lack of resources for other other countries, other nations, but also because, you know, she was there in the stadium and she heard those chants. She saw some like US fan in like a USA cameo jersey. And it felt really um I think aggressive. And I think that I can totally understand I can totally see how that domination paired with the U.S. as a nation state, as an aggressor, as an empire, geopolitically, you know, outside, off the pitch, as well as on it, can feel like a moment where it's it's not only hard to watch, but it also just reminds you of the general imbalance and, and power differential in the world, right? It feels like 
the whole weight of the country is beating up on under-resourced areas that they've already extracted resources from, that they've already oppressed. Like, I totally get that. Um, and and I feel like that oftentimes during the Olympics or during these world t- tournaments, um, part of that is the nature of when you put these kind of global entities together on a stage. You can't divorce it from the political you know, positions that these these countries are coming out of. Um, but I have to say for me, in, in this scenario, I didn't have that feeling. And that was largely because I think it's, we don't expect athletes to turn it off. And I think that I've watched so many times, I've watched the men's basketball team for the United States in the Olympics play under-resourced basketball team and it will be like 120 to 47 and nobody's batting an eye. And I do come from a philosophy where it's disrespectful to your opponent to not play. Like what would it even look like to just turn the game into a game of possession? Like I find that to be strange. And I find the chemistry of the team, particularly in terms of celebrations, and one of the things they articulated afterwards was, you know, this is us as a team. We've waited, we have pent up excitement, and this was, we were celebrating each other. And there's some people who played who are not going to see the field again. There's people like Carly Lloyd who still feel like they have something to prove. Like everybody has their own individual thing, but ultimately they're doing their job and they did it well that day. And I think that that's what kind of left me uncomfortable with the lecture I felt like they were getting about that, especially when the Thai players and the Thai coach themselves were saying how impactful the game was to them and how important their exchanges with their players were and how it, you know, it felt on on the pitch, which was that it was an opportunity and it was hard, of course, in the moment, but also they had utmost respect for the game and for their opponents. And I think that was mutual. And the other thing that I really was quite happy to see was that Pino went, Megan Rapino went on, um, you know, the show, whatever, uh, the talk show. Today show? Part of or, the, yeah. of the World Cup. Fox Sports. The, okay. No, it was gotcha. like the World okay. Cup. And I don't know what they're calling themselves, but she went to that little table in front of the <laughs> Eiffel Tower. <laughs> And, you know, she was asked about it, of course. And one of the things that I really appreciated that she did is she's like, listen, I get it. You want to have a conversation about the lack of resources? Absolutely, we should. But also, we should certainly take that up with FIFA. And she was like, you know, and and she didn't stop there. She was like, I've heard, for instance, that Chile didn't get to practice as a full squad until X amount of weeks ago. I've also heard that X, Y, and Z. She straight out called out FIFA and called out the federations that are lacking in resources. And I think that's really important because I think that there's a way in which they became conduits. They became the focus point for the unevenness of resource allocation in women's soccer. And I feel like that's really missing, you know, the target about these other federations. And I think at the end of the day, look, women's soccer, we've seen an enormous growth in it. We've covered on this show a lot of the ways that we still have to go. But I think that in four years, maybe we'll even see a more competitive field. But the nature of these tournaments are, especially in the group stages, that you're going to have some of these lopsided moments. And it's while it's a shame, I think that 
the players themselves has demonstrated that they are aware of the issue and that they're also putting pressure on the on the place where the pressure really needs to be applied. Yeah, I mean, look, I completely understand feeling the, you know, <laughs> bully and the, you know, the the toxicity of the way United States patriotism and United States world domination, you know, exist. But that's also a lot to put on these women's soccer players, right, for the United States. Like, that's not their fault, you know? They are here to do a job. And ultimately, them doing their job well is going to lift up the rest of, you know, is going to help the sport as a whole, which will then help bring, you know, help lift it all up. I mean, you know, one of the things that really struck me was, you know, the New York Times did this huge spread the day after the game that had, like, pictures from all 13 goal celebrations. And it's like, if they don't get that big number, did they get that amount of attention? How many people only found out that Team USA was that the World Women's World Cup was happening because of that, right? And that's ultimately like they went out there and they did their jobs. And I understand if you think it's it's ugly American and all of that. And I, you know, I, I get that, but I also really think that these women deserved to celebrate every single goal because look, there are a lot of people who have not picked them to win the Women's World Cup. It's not like they're shoe-ins to win everything this year, you know? It's not like they've had the easiest time in the fight. I mean, this is still going to be a really big battle. They have all this pressure on their shoulders. Like you said, I mean, for players like Sam Mewis, who, like, people don't know who she is, she got to score a World Cup goal. She should celebrate that, right? Because that's a huge huge deal. Um, and, and, you know, for so many of these players, because women's soccer doesn't really get a spotlight except for once every four years, like this is a big chance for them individually too, right? Like to get, to get some attention, to, to help build their brand, to help kind of, you know, leverage their talents into more. And women don't get that spotlight that often. So by all means, part of being an athlete is being selfish and taking that spotlight. And I, I, you know, I just really didn't have problem with anything that they did, especially because of how much fighting they're doing for the rest of women's soccer because of how much, you know, you saw Carly Lloyd really comforting the Thai goalkeeper afterwards. Everyone on the Thai team did come out and say like that they really felt respected by Team USA. And if you saw, so Thailand, I believe it was on Sunday, got beat by Sweden 5-1. to one. But if you see the reaction from the Thai players, and especially they have a benefactor because they don't get much support from the Federation. Oh, so ew. they have a benefactor. And the way they were celebrating after that one goal, it will just, you will sob. And you know what? They had to earn that goal. Nobody gave them that goal. They earned it. And their celebration is just, it just gave me chills. So I just, look, ultimately, there's a lot of imperialism and a lot of awfulness with the United States. And I want to dissect that and take that down. Uh, I want to see Team USA challenged. I want to see women's, you know, global women's soccer get more competitive. But ultimately, I think people are projecting a lot onto a 13 nothing onto one game that, like, doesn't really deserve, you know, that that these players aren't responsible for. Right. Did you see that totally. tie goal and that celebration, Amira? It was, oh, I was so happy. Yeah. I, it was, it was lovely. And like, that's, you know, that's why I watch. Like, honestly, like that is the, the those are the moments. The other thing that you saw, right, is like the USA trolling after their goals today, with just doing golf claps or handshakes, right, as a kind of tongue in cheek 
to their critics. And also, I just want to say that I just saw this number that viewing of the Women's World Cup is up 310% on online streaming platforms than 2015, right? And so I do think this also points to the fact that like more people are tuning in. Like I find... I feel like we're always playing this game of being able to say like, this is what growth looks like. And then here are the things that are still like really annoying about that and that we need to work on. And so like, I think viewership is up as Brenda has noted online. If you see her makeshift duct tape jerseys, like it'd be really great if we could get merchandise so that people can, you know, do that. I did see, I took a picture of it. I'll put it in, in the show notes. They started having USA jerseys and like Target and stuff like that. Although mostly they're either say like Lloyd, Morgan, or Mia Hamm. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and my like, friend said, my it? friend who's a guy said he couldn't find any men's. I think he was a dick sporting You goods. can't find yeah, any men's, really right. That's the other thing that's really annoying about it. But I did find this one shirt said USA on it and it was like pony tails, corner kicks, something, something, and championships, right? And so you can tell that they're trying to do like the female lookbook, like part of it, but like there's dudes who support this team, like just let's, let's just get it to fucking gather, please. But other than that, you know, I'm super excited for this next week, this last week of group play. Just a reminder for everybody tuning in. These are when the group stages are played simultaneously. So there's going to be games on at the same time as group play wraps up. We have some really great matches to see who else is punching their ticket into the round of 16. And it's just, you know, we just have so much soccer left and I'm thrilled about that. So it is now my pleasure to talk to Eileen Murray from the New York Gridlock team in the Premier Ultimate League. Eileen has a storied career, right, in Ultimate, um, both at the national level and with various other coaching positions. But we wanted to talk in particular about the new Premier Ultimate League, which is in its debut season right now, and I believe wrapping up its regular season. So Eileen, welcome to Burn It All Down. Thank you so much for having me. So Let's start first just with ultimate. So I am, I grew up in Amherst, Massachusetts. So I am fairly familiar with ultimate because it's like a hotbed for ultimate there, but other people may not be as familiar. So can you give us just a quick rundown of what the game of ultimate Frisbee is like beyond, I think, you know, the conceptions that people may have of the sport in their head? Sure. So When I explain Ultimate Frisbee to people who aren't super familiar with it, I tell them that it's a combination of soccer, American football, and basketball. And the reason why it's similar to soccer is because it's a continuous game that at each point ends in a score. So teams can go from offense to defense fluidly, depending on who has possession of the Frisbee. It's like football, though, in that you score by passing into an end zone, And it's like basketball because there are some rules around picks and pivot foots and things like that 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 you need to be familiar with. But basically, it's a field sport where you play seven on seven. Uh, You pass, you advance by passing the Frisbee in any direction. Once you receive the Frisbee, you have to stop moving. And then you get one point for a score by someone receiving it in an end zone. And then each point is started with something called a pull, which is like a kickoff in football. And games typically go 
either to a certain time limit or to a certain point. Yeah. And if you haven't seen an Ultimate Frisbee game, first of all, you should. But second of all, it's so fast paced when people lay it out, you know, to dive and, and get the Frisbee. It's exciting. It's just like, you know, it's, it has all the adrenaline and all the exhilaration of any sport. So I highly recommend that you check it out. So can you give us the landscape of what professional leagues look like for Ultimate Frisbee? And then tell us, you know, what brought you and others to start the Premier Ultimate League? Sure. So eight years ago, there was a professional league started called the American Ultimate Disc League or AUDL. This was a men's professional league and um, just was started by a group of men who were interested in turning the game into a professional sport. A year later, that league split into another league called the Major League Ultimate. So there were two professional men's leagues for six years. There was some disagreement about how the league was functioning and it should, should it be a franchise or central office model. Two years ago, though, the MLU folded and now we're back to one professional league, um, the AUDL. So the AUDL was created for and by men, although there have been some women participating in that league over time. But in the very beginning of its inception, people were really excited for this advancement in the sport and just thinking about the ways in which uh, professional visibility might promote our sport in positive ways. But it quickly became apparent that that what that model was problematic because it was showcasing only men in our sport and very few women. So a couple of years ago, people started to think about how this was impacting our sport, probably in a negative way. Because what we started noticing was that, you know, internationally, as well as youth in this country, we're now starting to identify the sport of ultimate Frisbee with the professional league. And so what that does is then limit people's exposure to female athletes or not, you know, non-male athletes. And so people started to think that we should really reconsider this model because the exposure was then becoming so lopsided. So, you know, three years ago, a group of Ultimate Frisbee players got together and started to put pressure on the AUDL to increase its efforts for gender equity. And there was a boycott. So a lot of players signed a letter saying that they would not support the AUDL unless they made, you know, specific intentional movements towards gender equity. And then the year after the boycott started, another group of people started to just create professional women's teams before a league even started. So cities like Atlanta and Austin and Nashville, Indianapolis, Detroit, all just created a team and said, we are professional ultimate Frisbee and had some exhibition games. The year after that, so it was this year. So in 2019, that group of people decided that just having random teams was not sustainable. So they decided to create a league and that that was the inception of the premier ultimate league. And that's when New York hopped on board. So I knew the people who were doing this and was in conversations because I was actually involved in the men's professional league. I was I had coached in the MLU for two years and coached in the AUDL for two years as well. And um, so I knew what was happening uh, both sides. And when I heard that you know a group of people were creating this new league, um, I decided that that's where I should put my efforts and then decided to move over and started the New York team. 
That's wonderful. Now, there's something that you mentioned about equity that really jumped out to me in your mission statement, where you guys are quite, you know, explicit about saying our league strives for gender, racial, and economic diversity, and particularly you talk about values of gender being on a continuum and, and beyond a binary, and talk a lot about being inclusive in your league. What are some of the ways um, that the league exemplifies that inclusion already? And are there other kind of strides you're taking to continue to be diverse and inclusive within the sport? Right. So we really were very intentional in the language that we put up on the website and the language that we use to communicate what the league is about. And so when the league was starting, we had a lot of conversations about what that would look like. And so if you notice on our website, when we write women, we write it with an X. And the reason we do that is because we want to illustrate that we do recognize, like you said, that gender is a continuum, that there exists beyond the binary. And so thinking about right now, it's difficult in sports in general because there's men's and women's, but then where do all the nine binary people fit, right? And so thinking about how we could open it up and really push people to think beyond that and think about, you know, there are athletes who do not identify in the binary. And so we wanted to really intentionally open up a space for people to feel like they had a home to participate in a professional sport. And so as we were doing that, we were thinking about, you know, we looked at what other organizations did in terms of the eligibility requirements to enter into a team or in a league. So we, you know, looked at the Olympic committee, we looked at other professional sports and things like that. And we decided that what we were going to do is try to push the boundaries as far as possible. And so in our eligibility statement, we say specifically that there is no requirement for specific levels of estrogen or hormone replacement therapy, prescription, or gender affirmation surgery, or anything like that. And so really, we're saying this, we're putting this out there. Having said that, it's still difficult to like have people really believe that this is a safe space. And so currently in the league, we do have non-binary players, but as far as I know, there are no trans players in the league right now. So all we can do is make sure to continue to use this language, continue to do outreach and to invite people into the community moving forward. So that's one of the things we think about in terms of, you know, gender dynamics. Um, and it's very similar with like racial and social Um, and um, economic justice, right? And so again, Ultimate Frisbee currently is a pretty white sport. It's actually pretty white and middle class. And so thinking about, you know, again, ways that we can really show that we want this to be um, a diverse space. And so paying players, you know, paying, you know, making sure that they don't have any expenses during a season, Um, And then really opening up a space for us to say, like, we care about this. We want people to understand that we are actively trying to do things to bring people in. So one of the things that we did, for example, is this past weekend, my team, New York Gridlock Ultimate, went down to play Atlanta Soul. We went down a day early and Saturday before our game, our game was Saturday evening, Saturday from 11 to 1.30, we participated in, in an intersectionality workshop with the other team where we talked about 
the spaces in between gender and race and class and what that looks like specifically around Ultimate Frisbee and in our lives. And those are the kinds of conversations that our teams are having um, and will continue to have. And those commitments, I hope, will show people who are not in the league yet that we are committed to this and that it is a space where we welcome and actually encourage people to come to. Yeah, totally. I, I remember seeing a post on UltiWorld on Ultimate in Race. I think it was published last year calling for the sport to explore both subtle and not so subtle aggressions or microaggressions towards people of color who did play ultimate, but also thinking about how to open up the sport, particularly at the youth level. And, you know, in I think they were based in Philadelphia, but in cities, and it, it seems like the cities that are involved in Premier League, they're great spots to start doing some of this work and and have these discussions that you're mentioning. So the other thing that caught my eye about the league is that you have a pretty explicit national anthem statement on your website. And I wanted to ask you how that came about. And if you wanted to explain to folks what you guys were accomplishing there with that statement, it struck me as a pretty progressive move. Yes. Well, so this actually came up because players asked what we were going to do. So one of the things that especially, I mean, I can't speak for other teams, but what we did here in New York is when we were starting the team, I really wanted us to explore what it meant to be professional, to be a professional team and to be professional athletes and to think about we don't have to do what everybody else is doing. If we're going to do this thing and we want to really push the boundaries of what it means to be professional, then let's go ahead and push them, right? And so one of the things that someone brought up was, well, are we going to play the national anthem? And I said, I don't know, let's have a conversation about it. And so our team had a conversation about how people felt about that, what they wanted to do. And what's interesting is we have players on the team who have um, members of their family that are either in the military or serve, you know, in, in police departments and things like that. And so you know, and then we have other people on the team who didn't want any national, national anthem. So again, it's us being really intentional to say, we want to talk about these things and have these hard conversations. And it's okay if we don't agree, but let's come to something that we can all do together, something that we can all get behind as a team that we can value each other, commit to each other and support each other in ways that feel good. And we wanted to make sure that all teams had the ability to do that. And so once I, when I was thinking about this with my team, I brought it up to the board of the league and I said, what is everybody else doing? And some people were like, we hadn't even thought about it. Some people were like, well, we had these conversations. And so I suggested that maybe we just make a statement so that when someone came to a game, they weren't surprised if at one game the anthem was being played, another game it maybe wasn't. And so really allowing people to make that decision and what felt good to them. Because, you know, as you read on our website, I mean, the history of playing the national anthem at professional sports, I mean, that started kind of as a fluke, you know, at a, at a baseball game, I think it was in Chicago and it wasn't even before the game. It was in the middle of the game. The fans were kind of like, you know, not into the game and they played it. It was during world war one and everyone suddenly everyone got like super psyched. And so then it like over time, it became this institution, but you know, the Anthem wasn't officially adopted by Congress until 1931 anyway. And so you think about, you know, why this was happening over time and, and what does it actually say? And it seems like a lot of times when the Anthem's played, it's, 
it's mostly like ramped up during times, you know, where we want to, you know, have national unity. But then you think about like, why is a professional sporting event a place where we should have this sign of patriotism, right? So we wanted to make sure that people felt comfortable with the decision and made sure that people could do what they wanted to do. And we've been at a game where they played the anthem and we don't play it at our game. And when we were in Atlanta this past weekend, they played the Negro national anthem by one of their players. So people are doing what they want to do. And we just wanted to have people just eat, just think about it. So that's why we had that on our website. That's great. So this next weekend, June 14th and 15th, the Columbus Pride play at the Indianapolis Red, followed by, um, and then the Austin Torch also are playing in Raleigh at the Radiance. If you go to the website, premierultimateleague.com, you'll find not only more information on the entire league, but you also can see live streams on um, the specific channels of these teams and be on the lookout for Championship weekend, which is Friday and Saturday, June 28th and 29th in Atlanta, Georgia, in uh, Silverback Park in Atlanta. So you can also check out the website for more information about that, should you be in that area and want to watch it live. And Eileen, what else can people do to be involved, to um, highlight the PUL, to hold it up, and to... Well, yeah, I think going to the website, checking out the games online, we do almost all of our advertising on social media and all the teams have Twitter and Facebook and Instagram accounts. You're just checking those out, sharing things that you find interesting. We also have a team store through a company called VC Ultimate that makes all of our apparel and each team has a team store. So if you want to support the league or a specific team, you can go there and a portion of the profits go to each team because the team is our franchises. So we all are looking to raise money for these things. Currently, right now, we have a fundraiser happening for Pride Month where you could buy a Premier Ultimate League shirt with a modified logo. And all the profits for that fundraiser will be going to local organizations, LBGTQT organizations. You might want to fix that yeah. part. <laughs> organizations for each city in each city. So yeah, so th- that's a way to support not only the league, but also local organizations. But and then each team also on their websites typically has a, you know, a donation link that you can go to, but just watch, uh, share. And if you want and have the means, go ahead and donate. I did want to do a plug though, for one other thing, if that's okay. Yes, on, go for it. On, yeah, on June 22nd, the Atlanta Soul is helping to host a Colors of Ultimate event. And it is exhibition game for all people of color, players of color. And it'll be on Saturday night, June 22nd. And it's going to be an amazing event. So all of the players are going to be players of color that you know apply to go to this game. They're being funded to come in and it's going, it's a mixed game. So Players of all genders will be on two teams playing. They have coaches of color, commentators of color. I mean, really a place for us to celebrate the diversity we have in the sport and also to increase visibility of players of color. Because as we know, you got, you know, you got to see it to be it. So really pushing that. So it's going to be an amazing event. Well, thank you so much, Eileen, for giving us a chance to chat about the wonderful things that PUL is doing and to put it on folks' radar. I hope you all check it out, Flamethrowers. And Eileen, thank you once again for coming on Burn It All Down. Thank you so much. Okay. 
It is time for everyone's favorite section, the burn pile. I'll go first and then throw it to you, Amir, if that works. All right. So let's talk about Castor Semenya. As we know, Castor is involved in an ongoing battle to be able to run the way she was born. And um, she is fighting against the IAAF, against CAS. And now her case is all the way to a court in Switzerland, which is kind of dealing with her appeal. It's called the Federal Supreme Court of Switzerland. So right now, she is technically able to run any event she chooses without altering her body, having to take drugs to artificially suppress her naturally occurring testosterone levels. But other women who compete in those events who might be intersect or have naturally occurring testosterone levels higher than the new limit in events between 400 meters and one mile, they are still subjected to these, uh, these new regulations, these racist, uh, sexist regulations, because Castor is the only one bringing the suit right now. So the appeal, the stoppage, the temporary suspension is only for her. So Castor's continuing to fight and she let um there was a press release that was was released last week after one of the decisions about the appeal and buried at the bottom of this was something that i'm really kind of still having a hard time stomaching so at the end of the press release this is what castor smenia said i'm a woman but the iaaf has again tried to stop me from running the way i was born the iaaf questions my sex causes me great pain and required me to to take hormonal drugs that made me feel constantly sick and unable to focus for many years. No other woman should be forced to go through this in order to have the same right that all women have to do what we love and run the way we were born. So the reason this stopped me in my tracks is because as far as I know, this is the first time that Castor has talked about the years between 2011 and 2015 when she was forced to take drugs in order to compete. She never talked publicly about this. There was never any a direct confirmation whether she had or had not taken drugs during this time or the impact that it had on her. But because these rules were in place and they were very targeted to Castor Semenya, then it was it was just kind of wildly assumed. But the fact that she's now openly talking about the fact that taking these drugs for those four years made her feel constantly sick and unable to focus. And the fact that this is now what the IAAF is fighting to be able to do to not just her, but other women, all of the women who want to compete in the races. I just think it really, for me, it puts into stark perspective how inhumane this is. They might say, oh, it's just taking a pill. We're not requiring them to undergo surgery. It's just, you know, they just take a pill orally. But the truth is, like, altering people's hormones does fucked up stuff to them. Like, it messes people up to mess with people's naturally occurring hormone levels. Like, that is not something to play around with. And so I just want to throw again the IAAF onto the burn pile because this is not okay like this has to stop burn all right Amira yeah so this past week in London Nike unveiled its first plus size mannequin wearing athletic wear um in their flagship London store and there was a lot of appreciative reactions. Um, some people just, you know, carried on because it wasn't actually life changing. And then there was Tanya Gold, who felt so compelled by this mannequin to pen a piece in the Telegraph. And I just want to read the opening paragraph to you. She goes to talk about this mannequin and she says, 
But the new Nike mannequin is not a size 12, which is healthy, or even 16, a hefty weight, yes, but not one to kill a woman. She's immense, gargantuan, vast. She heaves with fat. She's in every measure obese. (laughs) She's not readying herself for a run in her shiny new Nike gear. She cannot run. She's more likely pre-diabetic and on her way to a hip replacement. What terrible cynicism is this on the part of Nike? What? And I say this, I cannot stress this enough. The fuck, Tanya. It, like, first, there's so many things wrong with this, but it irritates me so much. We have such a society that body shames and sends you message after message about what your body should look like. And particularly as somebody who's fuller sized, the feeling of being constantly contorting yourself, trying to pull it in because you're receiving all these messages that you don't look good, right? Um, never mind, you know, why or reason, whatever. But the this way that it, all these assumptions that she's making about health, about viability, about attractiveness, like all of these things, it's disgusting. And the fact of the matter is that all people of all sizes work out. No matter what, you can't tell by looking at somebody what their health is, what their activity level is. And guess what? People who are big need to work out too. I have double Ds. What the Nike, a little Nike little sports bra ain't gonna do shit for me. That's why you need these things. But it just smacks me the audacity to complain when people aren't fit or in health and wellness. And then when people are going to the gym, they need workout clothes. And also none of that even matters. Just mind your fucking business. If that mannequin isn't shaped to your body type, then okay. Look at all the other 852 that are. This is like, she describes this as a glorification of obesity that's killing the world or whatnot. And I'm like, but dude, she's literally in athletic wear. Like literally, like, right. Like yeah. I, just shut up. Like this made me so angry. Like I can't, I can't even so angry. Like mind your business. Oh man. It makes me so angry. I like, don't even have more words to say other than like, this is clearly burnable. This was clearly an awful thing to do. The telegraph should not have given, you know, space for it. I was happy with all the black backlash received. It received all the backlash. Um, and it should go right on the burn pile. Lindsay, I'm burning it down. Burn, 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 burn. Whew. I felt that one. Let's talk badass women of the week. Let's talk, start with Lindsay Gottlieb, the former head coach of Cal Women's Basketball, who was hired as an assistant coach for the Cleveland Cavaliers this week. Love to see this trend continuing and especially exciting to see this uh, pipeline from NCAA basketball coaching to the men's game. That is exciting as well. I want to give a shout out to Thailand for scoring their first World Cup goal. As we mentioned, go watch that video. It will show you what this is all about. Vivian Medema, who scored twice to become Netherlands' all-time leading goal scorer when Netherlands beat Cameroon on Saturday. 
want to give a shout out to Allison Risk, the unseated American who won the Labima Open, defeating Kiki Bertens in the final. And Caroline Garcia, who beat Donna Vekic in a thrilling match to win the Nottingham Open. And of course, Christian Endler, whose goalkeeping performance I will remember for years to come, as will, I'm sure, many others. And now, Amira, the drum roll's all on you this week, please. <clears throat> okay. <laughs> Woo! All right, I want to give the Badass Woman of the Week award to Washington Mystics guard Natasha Cloud. This week, Natasha Cloud decided to hold a media blackout. And instead of talking to reporters about the basketball game after the Mystics faced the Seattle Storm on Friday night in Washington, D.C., in a rematch of last year's WNBA Finals, Natasha used her platform to talk about gun violence in Ward 8 in Washington, D.C., Now, this happened because she had the the day prior, she was uh, reading books at an elementary school to kids and found out that their field day had been canceled because a bullet had hit the school. And not only that, but it was the third bullet in one month to hit that same school. This school is located just a few minutes away from the Washington Mystics new home, the Entertainment Sports Arena, which is in Ward 8 in D.C., And just want to give Cloud a lot of kudos for using her platform for calling out leaders and for challenging people to um, take better care of our children, especially in underserved areas and especially our black and brown children. So thank you, Natasha, for all you're doing. All right, Amir, we did it. We made it for the episode. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> can you think what's good amira <laughs> <laughs> we survived we, we did yeah i'm happy i'm in dc for the next few weeks my oldest does a theater intensive camp so i'm down here i'm happy because it means i have so many food options i get to see people like marcia chatlin who is my mentor and all-around badass uh, i get to see Lindsay. hopefully <laughs> Maybe we'll like actually make it to a spirit game <laughs> this year. We're all Jackie too when the Red Sox play the Nationals. I'm just really excited for summer to really be here. Um, this past week, my kids finished school and Samari graduated from elementary school, and I now have a middle schooler. So, if you're the praying type, pray for me. Wait, Amir, if- we have to talk about those photos, which were my what's close. <laughs> So if you don't, if you haven't seen, (laughs) my daughter and her friends were insanely um, emotional during their fifth grade uh, send off, despite the fact that 95% of them are going to the same middle school. And also we'll see each other all summer. But every picture, they are simultaneously sobbing, not crying, like legit sobbing. Sobbing. And laughing and like heaving at the same time. So there's like every picture they're crying in. And part of it is like half of them are theater kids and theater kids just give 110% to every emotion they're feeling. But it was like hilarious <laughs> because they like, would look at each other and burst into tears. And like just, it was wild. That's amazing. I just, you know what? Just that pure emotion just really got me. Like, that. it was just so pure. For me, what is good? 
<laughs> Sorry, it's it's been it's been a really it, it's been a rough week, but I would say what's good is I'm really enjoying this WNBA season. I'm planning my next trip home and which will mean I'll get to be on the lake a little bit. So I'm very excited about that. And you know, selfishly, I have to say, I love making it to WNBA games. I love covering the Mystics. They are on a long home stretch for the next uh, like 10, 11 days. And that might mean, though, that I have a little bit more of a social life. So I'm a little bit excited. <laughs> yeah. And you know what? I'm glad that our friends and co-hosts are ha- had such a great time and are having such a great time in France. And I'm not jealous at all. I'm totally okay. <laughs> and look, just thankful for all of you for listening. Support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash burn it all down. If you want merch, teespring.com slash burn it all down. Follow us on Facebook at burn it all down. Gmail, burn it all down at gmail.com. Twitter, burn it down pod. Twitter. That's our Twitter account. And yeah, I think our website is burn it all down pod and the Gemini somehow made it through. And thank you. 